0: Welcome to Coachup's Spark Leadership Podcast, a platform devoted to exploring the future of work through coaching and behavior change. This season we'll be sharing in-depth conversation with some of the world's brightest psychologists, entrepreneurs, HR professionals and thought leaders. We'll cover hot topics such as organizational development, women in leadership, executive coaching, and navigating work in today's market. I'm your host this week, Martin Nibelschutz, co-founder and CEO of CoachUp. Today I'm speaking with Navid Nazemian, an award-winning executive transition coach with over 20 years of international HR experience. He's also the best-selling author of Mastering Executive Transition, The Definite Guide. Navid, it's a pleasure to have you here today. Thank you for joining us. Let's get started. You define yourself as an executive transition coach. Can you explain us quickly what does it mean for you
1: and what do you typically do? Sure. So thank you for the warm welcome, Mattia. I really appreciate it. And so I get this question asked a lot of the time. But essentially what you have to bear in mind is that typical coaches, if they are in the business uh, field, they go to a development like I did that is considered to be leadership development coach training. So you get to understand how the human behavior works, how you can bring about behavior change and Generally speaking, the view and the focus is around self-awareness, behavior change, and you work with a longer time frame. Now, what an executive transition coach does is using some of those more behavioral rooted and behavioral change type components in their client work. But we also have something that is a lot more practical. So this is a structured methodology and a framework that I use to make sure if an executive is going to a career transition that they do it at an increased pace so they are faster onboarding they are transitioning quickly but also by doing that making sure that they are derailing the typical you know risks that are coming their way in a mindful and thoughtful way so we have some practical elements around transition planning and frameworks and methodology as well as some of the more longer term ideas around self-awareness and behavior change and you were talking about career
0: transition. At which points in their career do you typically um, support your executives?
1: Yes. So uh, it really depends on the client. I mean, I would say roughly half of my clients come to me when they have accepted a new challenge this is your you know cfo of a mid-sized company that has just accepted the first large corporate cfo role or this could be the same cfo in a mid-sized company that's accepted the first ceo position in the same kind of you know industry that they're working in this could be the the gm of a of a division that has uh, been earmarked to become the CEO of the carved out unit and do an IPO. So it really depends on the client. But I would say half of my clients are about to go through a career transition. And the other half typically sponsored by the organizations, are executives that are destined to go for the next bigger position, although there may or may not be a time frame when that's going to happen. So I call that program Executive Transition Readiness, which is, you know, the organization is proactively investing in the transition coaching. So as and when the opportunity comes up, they have a number of leaders who are ready to embark on that new transition and can hit the ground running. You
0: mentioned there are several risks attached to the career transition. Can you explain a little bit more about what these risks typically are? And maybe can you even share a little bit of an example how does like a typical working relationship with an executive go? What are the topics that you talk about?
1: When we talk about the most common executive transition challenges, there are many. In my book, uh, I have dedicated an entire chapter to this topic, and there are 12 uh, challenges that I name and give examples for. If I wanted to take my own example, so this is me being fairly successful as the HR director working for a company called BAT, Mm And I was the regional head of HR for the European R&D units. Of which we had eight. So I was a pan-European type HRD back then. And I looked after eight countries, all of which were, you know, scattered uh, in the European region. Then I got my big promotion and I was headhunted to go and join a company called Rush in the global head office in Basel. And I took up a role that was newly created for me. Now, Technically, if you look at the TA perspective, this is one transaction. This is one appointment. You know, company X hired me to come and do this job. The reality is, though, Matty, that I had to go through five major transition challenges at the same time. So the first one was the new organization challenge, right? So this is a company I've never worked for before. All I know about the company is through Glassdoor, through some, you know, website research and some, you know, investor presentations and so on. The second big transition challenge I had to go through was the big promotion challenge. You know, from an HR perspective, this is clearly the most logical step. You have done local roles, you have done regional HR roles, and now you're going for your first big global HR role. The reality is, though, I was in charge of 140 country footprint. And so very few of the interventions I had put in place to make this work in my European HR role would actually work at the global level. So that was the second challenge I had to overcome. The third challenge I had to go through is um, titled the Corporate Diplomacy Challenge, which I always say is a nice word for politics, right? And again, I was moving from a regional R&D head of HR role, which was fairly autonomous and independent from the mothership into the heart of the motherships. So I was like in the eye of the storm. And of course, if you work for a global organization at the global head office, you should not be naive and you should expect a ton of politics Politics coming your way. At the same time, I also face the international move challenge. And again, somebody may challenge me and say, "Well, you move from you know Bayreuth, Germany to Basel, which is a German-speaking part of Switzerland." But boy, you know, if you think someone moving from Glasgow to London or from London to Dublin. Technically, these are all English-speaking kind of, you know, cities. But uh, the reality is that even culture and leadership will be different in that new location. So that was my fourth challenge I had to go through. And last but not least, the fifth challenge that I had to overcome was the fact that this role never existed before I was appointed to come and perform in it. So that meant that some of the tasks and activities that I was mandated to perform on were done by previous, you know, senior HR leaders. And some of them were happy to let go of those tasks and responsibilities and others were not happy at all. So I had to really carve my role and remit and, you know, kind of own the space in which I was supposed to be operating in. And so you can see how, although technically I just accepted a new position, I had to deal with five major transition challenges of which I describe 12 in my best-selling book.
0: That definitely sounds like a load of challenges that you are facing in this situation and that many executives are facing in transition. How can coaching assist? What can you do for your executive that you are supporting with this variety of challenges? And in how far does that help to make the transition more successful? Sure.
1: So let me use an example from my first HR position that I landed just over 20 years ago. So this is the world's most famous uh, three stripes. This is Adidas. And when I started, we used to have employee Uh, interest groups we called them and and of course they were all sports related so you could you know sign yourself up for basketball for volleyball for this for that and I signed myself up for the running interest group and as a result of me signing up for that, and because I was new in the company I had to perform several different tests as a runner so that meant that the company could calibrate me to be in the right group it was a simple test to see what is my fitness level what is my running capability so that i don't end up as a casual runner in the hardcore group that is you know aiming for an ultra marathon in the desert let's say and so that was the first thing that uh, adidas got right but then the second thing that was to my surprise offered to me was when the coach uh, met me and showed me the results and said, I'm thinking of putting you into, you know, level four, there were, I think, 10 or 11 levels back then. So I was like in the lowest level, level four from the bottom. He said, if you ever wanted to run the marathon, you just need to let me know. And I will be supporting and guiding you how you can run your next marathon within a year's time, injury-free and with ease and grace. And not only will I design your training program according to that schedule so that you can run 43 kilometers in one go. But also I will be working with you on your nutrition, I will be working on you on your recovery and sleep. And so the reason why I cite this very simple example, Matty, is that this is what I call professional and qualified support. And if I had to, you know, put out the number one reason as to why executives fail during the transition, it's actually this. You know, executives just assume they are going to do it either because they have done it previously successfully or because they think they are competent enough to be able to do that. And now let's face it. If I had to Google on my own how to run your first marathon without injury and with ease and grace, go and try to find the best information that's relevant to my recovery and sleep phase. Go and try to come up with a plan that helps me with my nutrition and hydration. Of course somehow it's all doable but how much more easy and effective is it going to be if i work with someone who's done this several hundred times over with you know those several hundreds of employees before so this is why i think you know the coaching can be so much more powerful if you go for the right coach he or she would really make sure that you avoid the biggest pitfalls and at the same time you work on interventions that get you real results in the real world out there. Real
0: results in the real world. Let's double click a little bit on the business case behind executive transition coaching. Can you deep dive a little bit and um, share with us which financial impact you're seeing and um, do you even have
1: a view on an RI? absolutely i mean let's face it you know in today's world more than ever before uh, the, the roi is probably something you can't neglect even if you had the luxury of doing that and so i think it pays a dividend on three different layers in the organization the first one is the individual level so whether it's minimizing the likelihood of derailment for the executive whether it's mitigating key transition risks whether it's about enhancing job satisfaction accelerating time to performance, maximizing the executive's effectiveness and performance in the new role, I think it's pretty obvious that this has a positive impact on the individual level. But if you were to look at the same kind of topic through the organizational lens, I could think of reducing the risk of high stakes placements and the mishiring costs. If I wanted to use a very current example of Disney here, they had this very inspirational you know, founder that was in the top job for 20 years and then he groomed his successor for 26 years. He gave him the top job and he failed quite, quite uh, spectacularly. Already after 10 months, And that gentleman had to take a package of of, of over $23 million as a result of him being fired. And so, as you can see, there's a real cost attached to executive transitions going wrong. So you see how this is really paying a dividend at the organizational level. And then last but not least, if you were to look at the stakeholder lens, uh, look at the same topic through the lens of a stakeholder, it definitely gives investors and boards more confidence. You know, making sure that you have a succession plan and a leadership bench that is supported and you know is, is working out in an effective way is sending strong signals, not just to the board and the, and the investors, but also to the wider stakeholders of which the newer employees in our generation are very keen to see. So, so this is just at the aggregate level. And then if I wanted to use just a few financials because you asked for the ROI and the hard numbers, uh, 67% of company strategies fail because the execution is poor. They have a beautiful strategy. It's worked through. It all makes sense. But in order to get that strategy to be executed properly, there seem to be kind of you know this this effect that leads to this failure rate. Now, if companies get transitions right, they have a ninety percent likelihood that not just the executive but his or her entire leadership team is able to meet their three-year performance goals. If you were to look at the commercials of the business, you're looking at flat or declining revenue growth and profit margin between the laggards of the same bench of, of companies. And if you look at the upper quartile performers who get this topic right, then you're looking at two and a half times the revenue growth and twice the increase in profit margins. If you look at the executive failure rates, we haven't really touched upon it yet, but I found four independent studies that all come to the same conclusion, which is 40% of executive hires are either pushed out, fail, or quit within 18 months after the appointment date. Four out of 10 do not make it. Now, you can reduce that attrition risk by 50% and at the same time reduce the derailment risk by another 50% or more. And last but not least, you know, if you look at the ramp up time, the ramp up time for external highs at the executive level is between six and nine months. And for internal highs is between three to nine months. Now, if we were to look at successful transitions and companies that get this right, you have a 50% reduced ramp-up time. Or in other words, you are reducing the time to productivity for the newly onboarded executive. And again, what would that be worth to you if your next chief sales officer is having a 50% reduced ramp-up time? I mean, just just imagine that. If it's a CFO, if it's a CHRO, if it's the CEO. And so I make the real business case as to why this is not just... A nice topic to bear in mind for the HR and the the CEO leader in the company. But this is a must-get-right process. And so few companies really pay attention to it.
0: These are very tangible numbers and you mentioned 67% of company strategies fail basically making it a very clear case um, and what you even said it's mandatory to provide executive transition coach. Now I believe everyone kind of strives to be like the companies that you mentioned that are best in class that are not part of this 67%. What do they do differently? How do they approach um,
1: executive transition coaching? So first off, I speak about the golden thread in my book. Most people are familiar with the red thread. uh, And so I speak about the golden thread because everything is golden, including the cover of my book. And so what I mean by the golden thread is that you need three individual stakeholder groups to pay attention to this particular process. The first one is the executive leader. He or she needs to be convinced themselves that this is something that they could get support and help with. The second stakeholder in this equation is the HR partner. In most companies, the process is owned by the HR function, by the people function. In other companies, it's owned by the operations function, the finance function, or the CEO, or the chairman, or the nominating committee head owns the executive onboarding process. really shouldn't matter. But that's why it takes the support of the second uh, player here. And then the third counterpart is the organization. And what the organization can do is to obviously work with HR and the executive leaders to optimize this process. But also there is a bit of an investment required. I mean, executive transition coaches don't usually work for free. And so you need to make sure that you invest a little bit in the executive that's incoming. Now, let me also share that uh, study with you, which is done by Russell Reynolds Associates. And they have found that when you look at executive um, hires, roughly 90% of the cost is spent on the recruitment, selection, an assessment process of that executive leader. This is 90% of the total cost, and less than 10% is spending on the exact same executive once they have been hired. To make that hire more successful in the first, you know, 12 months or so or 18 months in the role. And so, again, I talk about the imbalance of investment in my book because I find it's not good enough to go after the best and brightest and hope that they're going to work out. Because as we know, four out of 10 don't make it. And again, the the most validated study to prove the 40% failure rate is one from Hydrogen Struggles. They have placed over 20,000 executive leaders over a 10-year time period, of which 40% were not around anymore after an 18-month uh, time period. And so we know this is real data, real facts, and whether it's Harvard Business Review, whether it's Center for Creative Leadership, and another study that I cite, they all come to the same conclusion. So there is a real benefit in getting that right and there are multiple interventions I speak about 10 of those in my book that the executive the HR function or the company can do in order to help this process and make this a more successful uh, journey.
0: Navid thank you I think this is super exciting and we could spend hours on this topic alone yet i would like to move on and also spend a little bit of time on your expertise on gender bias and especially gender bias in supporting executive and executive coaching because as a an coach and as an executive you bring a wealth of expertise how have you witnessed such a bias and how do you think and companies
1: overcome this bias That's really not the million dollar question, but the billion dollar question, right? And I can wholeheartedly say that, you know, I have had the good fortune of you know, working for some of the world's most admired companies on this planet over the last 26 years. And I have seen every single one of those struggling with this topic. So I don't want to pretend that, oh, some very few companies have really figured this out and all the others are left to, you know, uh, struggle. So that's the first statement I want to make in this space. The second one I want to make is it obviously takes, you know, commitment, energy, focus, sometimes a bit of a, a force pressure by the very top leader in the company and the HR person to really, you know, make sure that the, the targets or whatever the, the method is that you want to go about this has got some teeth and some real consequences if you get it right and if you don't get that right. But but above and beyond that, what I want to mention is that um, I found this study called the Executive Transition Study. It's uh, published by Development Damages International or DDI. And it's done every two or three years. And, and Mati, you, you will not believe it, but it was not really the focus of the study. The focus of the study was what are organizations doing to support the executives in transition, what are executive leaders doing. And so it was really more around what are some of the best practices out there. But as every good study should do, they were also checking on the demographics. So let's say if I were taking the study, I would say, what's my age bracket? What's my gender that I identified with? What is the size of my organization? What is the industry of my organization? And kind of the basic demographic questions and what this study found is that there is a gender gap in executive transition support between 13 to 22 percent between male and female executives now again this is not the focus of the study they didn't deep dive as to what are the reasons for that, what they found out is, for instance, there were three elements that they cited. One of them is, what is the percentage of the executives that receive leadership skills training, right? And uh, the female executives receive 55 and the male execs receive 62. So there's your 13%. What is the percentage of the executives that go through a formal assessment, get a formal debrief and use that as part of their ongoing development plan, the female execs is 48%, the male executives get 57% support. So here's your 90% kind of gap in terms of support. And last but not least, what is the percentage of executives that get assigned a formal mentor or a coach? And this is the shocking bit, uh, Mati, and you will be pleased to hear, that it's only 23% at the female level, and it's 28% at the the male executive level. Which, again, begs the question, I mean, if the very top layer of the organization does not get assigned a formal mentor or coach, then who does, right? And you see, if we wanted to look at this as an opportunity graph, there is... (laughs) 77% 77% uh, on the FEMA side, and there is a like 72% on the main front that we could still tap into to really support those, those execs. But really, I think if I were to give one piece of advice to any organization in order to get this right, it would be as simple as that. Define the level at which you deem executive transition support to be baked into the process So it does not become an individually negotiated benefit, right? And we know, I hope you agree with me, that uh, male executives are generally speaking much more forward coming and demanding when it comes to pay benefits and all sorts of different things, right? And I think the female executives are generally speaking much more decent and reasonable when it comes to these things. And so... By eliminating that individual negotiation piece, let's say if you have a company and you say VP level and above, vice president and above, for me is the definition of an executive leader, and anyone who gets a VP or above promotion will technically be entitled to get leadership skills training, get a formal assessment and debrief and being assigned a formal mentor coach. And by doing that one intervention, you eliminate any and all gender bias.
0: Thank you for sharing. Indeed, those numbers are alarming. So as many of the people in our audience might be in decision-making roles themselves, it's really valuable for sharing these insights. Thank you so much. We have come to the end of our program, but there's always one last question that we ask all of our guests. And this is, what's the most profound takeaway you've discovered from talking to a
1: coach? Hmm... I mean, I would like to go back to a long time ago, and this is someone I really rated and appreciated, and who really helped me to grow. That individual had done uh, some observation of me talking. And uh, he offered that to me in a very kind of non-judgmental way. And so he had written up on a piece of A4 paper an invitation to consider the question mark. And so he gave that to me and said, you know, I know you wanted to speak about this topic in our session today. I just feel that you would really benefit from dedicating at least one session to this open question I have for you and so I said oh, sure I mean you, you know I trust you 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 know what, what is it and he said would you be open to hear some feedback just from an observational perspective I haven't asked anyone about you or your strength development areas or anything but we've had a number of sessions and I just want to share something with you and the way he shared that feedback and reflection with me was really hard it was really tough for me to swallow because it was not nice to hear but he was so skillful at it he made me intrigued to want to learn about this and he really wanted me to really hear this out. And what he shared with me, the the kind of the constructive feedback he shared with me back then, Mati, still today, this is maybe now 15 years ago or so, has really shaped the way I interact and behave and perform in any role, whether as an executive or as a coach. And that's what I consider a game-changing intervention, although, you know, you will not read about it in any literature because it's a very personal thing. But that's just one example I can share with you around something that has been a true behavioral shift and change for me and something that really was not uh, just eye opening, but really tough for me to swallow. And yet, you know, we, we say as coaches, we say it's when you step out of your comfort zone is where growth happens. And that was certainly a stepping in a big way outside of what I used to consider to be my comfort zone, but really it has fundamentally shaped the way I interact with other human beings in, in a positive way. So I, I, I want to thank the individual for it.
0: That's the power of coaching. Thank you so much. Thanks to our guest, Navid Nazimian. It's been a pleasure to talk with you today. You can find Navid's book, Mastering Executive Transition, on Amazon. And thank you all for listening to Spark Leadership. You can subscribe to Spark Leadership on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter. If you want more information about CoachUp's program for your organization, please connect with us at coachup.com. Thank you and goodbye.